Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. We come and we say that you are great and greatly to be worshipped and adored. We marvel that you have created this world and uh, that this world is uh, singing its praise to you and that uh, you created us to, as humanity to represent you in this world, to be your visible presence. And yet humanity is prone to wonder, prone to forsake you. We marvel at your grace in sending your best beloved into this world to become like us and uh, to face even there the rejection of humanity um, of those who would rather get rid of the Lord Jesus. And thank you that you raised him from the dead, have vindicated him, and have invited all to come and find forgiveness at the cross. Father, we uh, thank you that you have found us and that you are a forgiving God and that we have forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Lord, you reveal yourself as a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. Thank you for your tremendous love and your compassion. And Father, now through your spirit, may you um, invite us to show compassion to others, to show love to others, to show forgiveness to others. Father, we live in a world that is hurting, uh, there are many parts, uh, parts of the body politic here in this country that are hurting from the traumas of uh, uh, the past 10 days. And we pray for all those who are seeking to bring healing into these environments, that you would give them grace. Uh, for those who are seeking to bring the healing of your spirit and the Lord Jesus, may you support them and uphold them and give them strength. We pray for uh, Rich Benson. Thank you, Lord, for his many uh, decades of faithful service uh, as an extension of us as a church family. And pray for him as he is in France counseling and debriefing this person released uh, from Taliban custody, um, that uh, he would be able to convey grace and love and that there would be healing there. And uh, pray you'd uphold him in... Uh, uh, such an exhausting work. Pray for Ali in North Carolina and uh, also for your provision for Susan's ongoing needs um, that uh, you would provide graciously for them. Father, we thank you for your great love for us uh, here uh, as a church family, as part of your people on earth. May you be at work in us to accomplish your good purposes and to uh, make us more and more the people that you'd like us to be overflowing in compassion and love and grace and kindness and forgiveness, even as you have shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So empower us in your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now is the point in the service to remind you of the opportunities to uh, give to support the Lord's work here and throughout the, uh, uh, throughout the world. So you can do that in various ways. Uh, texting uh, give the word give to our text number uh, or online or with an offering in the box at the back. So now it's time to prepare for uh, Eugene's message as he continues his series in Colossians in uh, chapter three. And uh, we have a scripture reading to prepare for that. And we have a scripture reader, uh, Savron uh, Young. So Savron, come on up.
She is in the second grade and will read for us. Now, Paul tells the Colossians, uh, forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. I'm sure none of us ever have grievances. Well, this is very hard to do, for our natural tendency is to want to harbor the grievance and even escalate it. But this leads down the path, path of Lamech, whom we read about in Genesis 4. Lamech, who bragged, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. But Jesus laid out a different path for Peter. So hear now the word of our Lord Jesus. Say, Brian. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or his sister who sinned against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Thank you, Savran. Thank you. And uh, now with those words, uh, Eugene, come on up and uh, bring the Lord's word to us. Savran, thank you once again for sharing the word with us today. Can we give her one more round of applause? Last weekend, with the start of the Lunar New Year, Asian American communities in both Southern and Northern California became the latest victims of what has become a very old problem here in America. 11 people were killed and nine others wounded by a lone gunman at the Stardance Ballroom in Monterey Park. And two days later, in Half Moon Bay, just a 40-minute drive from this sanctuary where we've gathered this morning, Another shooter opened fire on a group of people, killing seven and injuring one. The shootings have devastated Asian American communities, not only in Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay, but throughout the country. And though motives have yet to be fully clarified, the shootings have raised questions that affect all of us. Questions about gun control and domestic violence and the treatment of low-wage workers. Of course, these questions had already been raised, endlessly raised, it seems, again and again, but without resolution, without movement, without any semblance of progress as the number of mass shootings in America for the calendar year 2023 have already reached 39. Today is Sunday the 29th of January. Now, as an Asian, the wounds inflicted by these latest shootings feel fresh. But as an American, they feel as old as sin. I have vacillated between the feeling of fresh agony and old rage throughout this past week, a week that saw my preparation arriving at the Apostle Paul's word to the Colossian believers concerning forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, the question that I'd like for us to think about this morning is how do we forgive? How do we forgive sins as fresh as the blood that's been spilled? How do we forgive sins as old as the scars that are left behind? How do we say with Christ of those who harm us, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do? What if they do know? How do we forgive? These are hard questions, 
but the Spirit is wise, so let us pray once more and ask that he speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, just desperately in need of your guidance, desperately in need of your goodness, and desperately in need of the reminders of your love and your kindness and your forgiveness towards us, your people, and the mercy that you hold out to a world that clearly, clearly doesn't deserve it. God, help us to, help us to become vessels of that mercy. Help us to become people who relay that invitation to grace to a world that desperately needs to hear some good news. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning is Colossians chapter three, verses 12 through 14, just three verses. Yet the beauty of these verses shines against the dark events of this past week. And so holding both intention, I'd like for us to dive right in. In a reversal of the lists of prohibitions that we encountered in last week's passage, Paul gave the Colossian believers the positive command to put on a different set of attitudes and practices in place of what they were to put off, a different behavioral wardrobe, so to speak. Put on, then, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Unlike last week, we do have the time to take a closer look at each of these five terms, these five behavioral garments in the wardrobe of Christ-likeness. The first garment is compassionate hearts. The Greek phrase behind this translation is splangtha oiktirmu. I'm sorry if that butchered the Greek pronunciation. I'm sure many of you could correct me afterwards, but that's the best that I can do. That first word refers literally to a person's bowels their guts. And the second word in that phrase expresses a compassion towards others that is particularly sensitive to the hardships they are facing. So what's in view then is an emotionally available, gut-level, visceral empathy for others, especially in times of difficulty. That's the first garment that Paul calls us to put on. The second garment in the list is kindness. The Greek word here can certainly be translated as kindness, but perhaps with extra emphasis on helpfulness to others. The third garment is humility. The Greek word used here is similarly straightforward. It describes a self-forgetfulness that is willing to put the needs of others first. As C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. The fourth garment in Greek is prauteta, rendered here as meekness. This word was used frequently by the New Testament authors to describe gentleness and attitude and behavior. Meek people are not argumentative or harsh, but show courtesy to everyone. You can probably tell I'm trying to keep my volume level a little bit lower than usual. Trying to be meek. (laughs) Even those in need of correction and And the meek are themselves teachable and willing to listen. Perhaps we could say that meekness is the commitment to show courtesy and honor to everyone, irrespective of who they are or what they've done, even if it means being perceived of as inferior or subordinate. The fifth and final garment is patience. The Greek word behind it can also be translated as fortitude and endurance. It projects the ability to remain calm and undisturbed even when provoked or facing hardship. 
These are the five garments Paul urged the Colossian believers to put on in the place of lust, violence, and pride, these things that they used to wear. But let's pause here and imagine a person dressed in these garments and living out these five characteristics. Just imagine with me having a friend who is always ready to listen to your problems with empathy and emotional availability. And whenever you share with them, they are ready to help, but, but thoughtfully, not just trying to solve your problem for you or hijacking the conversation to brag about how they solved their problem. No, they humbly create space for you. They create room for you, for you to hear from the Holy Spirit, whom they trust is also present in the conversation. And even if they do feel moved by the Spirit to correct you or to offer some needed perspective, they do so with such gentleness, with such sweetness, with a meekness that you don't even realize that you've been rebuked. They lovingly bring you with them into the truth. And when you push back, because we all push back from time to time against good sense, they patiently endure. They understand where the pushback is coming from and they allow it to run its course, knowing that the Spirit will bring you where you need to go. Imagine having a friend like that. I mean, I would love to have more friends like this. I've been using the words good, beautiful, and necessary to describe what the biblical authors envisioned the church becoming, and I really can't imagine something better, more beautiful, more necessary for this world than a community defined by these characteristics. A community defined by compassion and mercy, supportiveness and selflessness, gentleness and understanding. A community that creates space to try and become what we all were meant to be. But when we fail, and we will fail, to be lifted up again in grace. These garments are beautiful, but for all their beauty, our passage goes on to show that they were built for hard work. You'll notice that those little icons next to each of them are different garments in, um, in, in work clothes. I used to work at Stevens Creek Surplus down the street over here, and we sold a ton of work clothes, work boots, work vests, work helmets, work gloves, work everything. And when I think about these garments here, yeah, they are beautiful, but I can't help but think about those boots and those pants and those shirts and those vests and all that gear that is used to do hard work because these things are meant for hard work. What work is this? Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, another forgiving each other. This is what the Colossian believers were to do with their garments. This is the work they were built to do. Bearing with repeats the idea in verse 12 of patient endurance. The direct object of this forbearance, one another, makes clear that Paul had patient endurance of others' misbehavior in mind. Not just bad circumstances, but misbehavior. And this is reinforced by the second phrase, forgiving each other. The Greek word Paul used for forgiving carries the sense of releasing someone from a debt. The Colossian believers were not merely to endure one another. No, they were to go beyond endurance to forgiveness, beyond merely tolerating one another to releasing one another of the debts they owed to each other. 
This forgiveness is a primary expression of the five garments in verse 12. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These characteristics are most clearly expressed in the willingness to forgive others, to create room for others, to honor the image of God within them despite their brokenness, despite their sinfulness, despite everything that makes them unworthy in our eyes. Such forgiveness is hard work, but it is something truly good, beautiful, and necessary in this world. And it is often in short supply. Forgiveness only seems to be getting rarer in this age of ideological polarization and zero-sum cultural warfare. We get the impression from pundits, politicians, and even pastors on social media, cable television, and podcasts that there are only two kinds of people in this world, friends and enemies, innocent and guilty, red and blue, winners and losers, fellow humans, and monstrous others. The world seems to be locked in conflict between these sides, trapped between the binary banks of an adversarial current carrying us towards mutual annihilation. And this is nothing new. This adversarial current has characterized humankind ever since we rejected the Sabbath rest of the God of life and turned instead to the father of lies, Satan, the adversary. Cut off from the abundance of God's provision, we followed Satan into a world of scarcity, into competition over that scarcity, and we normalized the mindset of scarcity that has no place for grace, no margin for mercy, but only the satanic virtues of survivalism and retaliation. Miroslav Volf, the deeply insightful Croatian theologian who was no stranger to conflict and suffering, he observed in his landmark text, Exclusion and Embrace, that the world has followed in the footsteps of Lamech in Genesis 4, as we were reminded in the scripture reading. Lamech said to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech responded to a wound with murder. And rather than feel remorseful or repentant, Lamech relished the power he had tapped into, the power of this adversarial current. And it's in this current that our world swims, coursing through cycles of violence and vengeance and vengeance and violence. As Wolf put it, instead of wanting to forgive, we instinctively seek revenge. An evil deed will not be owed for long. It demands instant repayment in kind. But despite the seeming fairness of this retaliation, it inevitably becomes deeply problematic. Again, Wolf. The trouble with revenge, however, is that it enslaves us. When one party sees itself as simply seeking justice or even settling for less than justice, the other may perceive the same action as taking revenge or perpetrating injustice. And so a just revenge leads to a just counter-revenge. And the adversarial current flows. And for proof that it does, we need only look inside our own hearts. When I look inside my own heart, I have seen the adversarial current flowing within me. I've retaliated against those who've hurt me or prevented me from securing what I felt I needed. 
I've taken revenge, maybe not in any socially unacceptable or even criminal ways, but a bit of nasty sarcasm here, a mean-spirited joke there, a mistake that I just wouldn't let slide, an insult I posted online, a slanderous piece of gossip I relished in passing along, a hateful thought, many hateful thoughts I've nursed with violent imagination. I've given silent treatments to those who've hurt me or disappointed me or simply annoyed me. I've been brusque and rough, created atmospheres of unwelcome, let people know that they aren't safe around me and shouldn't get comfortable. Maybe you can relate to these confessions. Maybe there have been times when our acts of retaliation did cross the line of social acceptability, maybe even legality. Maybe things that we've said or done would rightly be recognized today as abusive and manipulative, as evil in their own sight. Perhaps we can see the adversarial current flowing within us as well as the part of us that wants to defend it. Well, we only did what we did because the other person deserved it. If you had been in my place, you'd understand. You'd probably have done the same thing. They're lucky. They're lucky I didn't give them what they really deserved for all the ways they've hurt me. And there's probably some truth to that. Those feelings are probably justified to a certain degree, which only intensifies the adversarial current raging within us. Wolf captured this tension when he asked, how will we be able to confess our wrongdoing without seeking to justify ourselves by pointing to the wrongdoing we have suffered? A wrongdoing that both dwarfs any wrongdoing that we may, might have committed and provides a good deal of explanation for why we committed it. In Colossians 3, 12 to 14, Paul offered an answer to this question and to the broader question behind it. How do we stem the adversarial current within us? How do we become willing to forgive others, to show them compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience? Paul's answer begins back in verse 12 in a phrase that we skipped. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Once again, the freedom to obey comes from remembering the truth. Paul inserted into the command to put on the garments of forgiveness three reminders of the Colossian believer's identity. First, Paul called, called them God's chosen ones. The Colossian believers were part of the elect, those God had chosen for his family. They hadn't merely stumbled their way into God's good graces or even chosen him first. No, God had chosen them. They belonged to him. He had accepted them. Second, Paul called the Colossian believers holy, and though we typically associate holiness with moral perfection, at its core, the word holy means to be set apart. The Colossian believers had been set apart for God from the people of this world and from the lives they used to live. This term, like chosen before it, affirmed their belonging to God and his acceptance of them. And so did the third word Paul used to describe the Colossian believers, beloved. God loved the Colossian believers. They were his cherished children, his precious sons and daughters, and they had the right to approach him as their loving heavenly father. Beloved is a term of familial endearment. 
It once again expressed the Colossian believers' belonging and acceptance. Chosen, holy, beloved. This was a powerful reminder of their identity. And it becomes even more powerful when we realize, when we remember, that these three ideas had originally been applied exclusively to the people of Israel. In Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, Paul took these words and applied them to the Colossian believers. They had become the new people of God. His prized possession in all the world, his very own children, heirs of the greater promised land of the new kingdom of God in the new creation to come. But how had this come about? How had the Colossian believers become chosen and holy and beloved, belonging to and accepted by God? Verse 13, the Lord has forgiven you. Though they should have been rejected by God, though they, sh- though they were unholy and clothed in sin, and though they w- should have been hated and condemned by God as his enemies, none of this happened or would ever happen because The sin that had made them unacceptable, unholy, and unloved by God had been forgiven. God released the Colossian believers of their debt to him because Christ, the chosen, holy, beloved son of God, died on the cross in their place. Christ showed them ultimate compassion, ultimate kindness, ultimate humility, ultimate meekness, and ultimate patience. That friend we imagined earlier Christ had become that friend to the Colossian believers. And now it was the Colossian believers' turn to put on these garments and to wear these practices of Christ-likeness. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The command flows from the truth. Paul knew that remembering the truth of their forgiveness would free the Colossian believers to forgive those who hurt them. But how? How would knowing they'd been forgiven free them to forgive others? By helping the Colossian believers see themselves. The forgiveness of Christ frees people to see themselves as they truly are and to do so without fear, without guilt, without shame, without the urge to turn away or to excuse whatever they find in themselves. As the Apostle John wrote in his first letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. The forgiveness of Christ, the chief expression of his love, removes from us the threat of punishment, allowing us to take honest inventory of who we really are and what we've really done. I experience this on a daily basis with my sons. If I come into my room and see that it's a mess and I ask what happened, I have to hasten to add, no one's in trouble. I'm not mad. You're okay, so what happened? And of course the confession comes. When the threat of punishment is removed from us, we can look at ourselves honestly without pulling away. We can stare deep into every corner, every dark corner of guilt. We can peer into every secret shame. We can explore the lies and the beliefs driving our behaviors with objectivity and honesty. And we can rediscover ourselves for the humans that we are, broken and sinful and imperfect. 
yet chosen and holy and beloved. And then we can begin to see others the same way. The more we see of ourselves, the more we see ourselves in others. The more we recognize of their sins, the more we recognize in their sins reflections of our own. And the closer we come to the liberating realization that if someone like me can be forgiven, so can someone like them. We are not so different after all. They aren't the monsters I thought they were. And I am not the saint I'd like to think I was. Wolf described this as the movement from exclusion to embrace. He explained, forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. In other words, forgiveness is impossible so long as we don't see those who hurt us as real people and we don't see ourselves as real sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. It is in that place of common sinfulness, of shared humanity, that perpetrator and victim realize those categories no longer make any sense. And they are able to embrace one another in the same need for forgiveness. I'll share just one more quote from Wolf with you. When one knows that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself in the light of God's justice and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. But also in Christ, belovedness, belonging, acceptance. The only way to stem the adversarial current within us is to allow a new current, the current of forgiveness, to take its place to fill us up with the liberating forgiveness of Christ and to overflow in forgiveness for others. And not only is it how we resist the adversarial current, but according to Christ, it is how we live as members of God's household. When Peter asked him how forgiving he had to be, Christ reversed the logic of Lamech and answered with a euphemism for infinitely. And he has supported his answer with what has become known as the parable of the unmerciful servant. The parable begins with a servant who owed his king 10,000 talents. That much silver would be worth about $3 billion today. Needless to say, the debt was insurmountable. All this servant could do was beg the king for patience and promise to repay it all somehow. But the servant was in for a surprise. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The king didn't accept the servant's promise. He didn't put him on a payment plan, and he certainly didn't do what was in his right to do, force the servant and his family into debtor's prison to work off their debt over the next 100,000 years or so. No, the king simply released the servant of his debt. He didn't even reduce the debt, do you see? He released all of it, all, all of the debt. He forgave him. 
On his way out from the king's presence, the servant bumped into another of the king's servants. When he recognized his fellow servant, he remembered he owed him some money and immediately began choking his fellow servant, demanding what was owed. Now, sometimes we overlook the fact that what was owed was a significant amount of money. It was about 100 denarii, which is about 100 days worth of labor. Four months' salary. It's not a small amount. So he begins choking his fellow servant, demanding repayment. When his fellow servant begged for patience, the forgiven servant threw his debtor into the very same prison he had just narrowly escaped. And the king heard what had happened. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant despite how sizable that debt was? Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Christ concluded the parable with this warning. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. God the father gives us what we choose, brothers and sisters. If we choose to follow the adversarial current of this world despite the forgiveness shown to us, if we choose retaliation and revenge, resentment and grudge-bearing, if we choose a graceless and merciless meritocratic life where people get only what they deserve, he will give to us our just desserts, gracelessly and mercilessly. But if we remember our forgiveness and the compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience Christ has shown to us and continues to show to us and will forever show to us, if we live by grace and mercy, forgiveness and forbearance, then we prove ourselves genuine members of the household of the king, true children of God who bear a familial resemblance to Christ. And so this command to Peter and to the Colossian believers comes to us as well. As the Lord has forgiven you, as the Lord has forgiven us, so we also must forgive but perhaps it still doesn't sit well with us. Perhaps Peter's question still echoes in our hearts, not because we disagree that we are called to forgive, but because, well, isn't there something missing in this forgiveness? What about justice? Does forgiving someone for the wrong they did mean they never have to face any consequences for what they did? Does forgiveness take the place of justice? The answer, perhaps surprisingly, is no. No, forgiveness does not take the place of justice. Releasing our enemies from the debts they owe us does not mean circumventing or being deprived of justice. Why? Well, first of all, God has promised to execute ultimate justice for his people in the final judgment. Remember the exhortation and the promise of Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. As it, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
God has promised vindication for his long-suffering people. He takes up their cause as his very own. Forgiveness and trust, ultimate justice into God's very capable hands to his very fearsome wrath. So if our friends, I'm sorry, if our enemies are going to face God's wrath, why bother forgiving them? Because forgiveness is more for us than it is for our enemies, at least initially. As many Christians and non-Christians alike have recognized, forgiveness is not about soothing the guilty consciences of those who have hurt us or negating the pain that we feel. No, forgiveness is about liberating ourselves from that hurt and taking back the freedom our pain has stolen from us. Forgiveness is for us so that in the words of Romans 12:21 we may not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good and we overcome evil with good when we seek justice not out of hurt not out of vengeance not out of a sense of what is owed to me to me personally but out of a clear-eyed love for those around us which even includes our enemies When we forgive, we regain the clarity and objectivity and honesty we need to correctly identify what must happen moving forward for our good, for the good of those who may be hurt in the future, and for the good of those who have hurt us. This is justice, brothers and sisters, and this is love. To love another is to meet their needs. Agape love is the unilateral, uncoerced freedom to do good to someone. Forgiveness helps us see through the distortions and exaggerations caused by our woundedness and to discern what is truly most loving for all. It is no surprise that Paul added another garment to the wardrobe of Christlikeness in verse 14 of our passage. And above all these put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony, Love wraps around the other garments. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Love wraps around all these like an overcoat, binding them together as we mature and directing their expression in forgiveness. But love also directs their expression in accountability. Love also directs their expression in the prevention of future harm. Love also directs their expression in the protection of victims, past and potential. Love directs compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience in the pursuit of justice. Forgiveness is one step. It is a crucial step, but it is one step in the process of love. It's where the love of Christ first meets us. And it's where we must meet one another and this adversarial world. Brothers and sisters, let us begin that process anew today. Let us forgive as we have been forgiven. I invite the praise team to return to the platform to help provide the space here to do that. And as they come up, I invite you to ask yourself, is there someone God is calling me to forgive as I have been forgiven? Maybe you knew that person, their name popped into your head, their face appeared before your eyes from the very start of this sermon. Maybe you were even hoping, like I was, that you wouldn't have to hear this invitation. But is there someone God is calling you to forgive?
Not to deny their guilt. That's not what we're saying here. Not to deny their need to change. We're not looking past that either. Not to spare them of all consequence. Not to give trust where it hasn't been earned. But simply to forgive. Simply to understand. Simply to release. Is there someone we need to see for the broken person that they are? Someone who sins we need to entrust to God. Perhaps there is someone you need to begin forgiving today and perhaps in order to do that, like the psalmists and the prophets of old, maybe you need to express to God your hurt and your pain, the hurt and the pain that they caused and the anger and the grief and the desolation you feel because of it. This sanctuary is just that. It's a safe place to bring whatever's in your heart to God. So let's use this space as it was intended. Let's take some time and let's pray. Now, brothers and sisters, we may need more time to process our feelings and to release them in forgiveness. And that's entirely all right. That's how it should be. Forgiveness is not instantaneous. It's a process that takes time. And you may find that in that process, when you think you've forgiven someone, you come back to that pain years later and realize that as you've changed and grown, you've discovered new ways that that hurt actually hurt you. And you may need to go back and forgive again, and again, and again. That's okay. That's what forgiveness looks like. Nevertheless, before we close this time in prayer, I invite you to recite with me, I'm sorry, close our time in worship, I wanna invite you to recite with me this prayer taken from the Book of Common Prayer as an, as an expression of our commitment to continue this process of forgiveness. You are under no compulsion, but just join me only if you feel ready to do so either to pray this prayer aspirationally, someday I want to feel this way, or confessionally, God, this is where you've brought me. Let's pray. God of compassion, you have reconciled us in Christ Jesus, who is our peace. Enable us to live as Jesus lived, breaking down walls of hostility and healing enmity. Give us grace to make peace with those from whom we are divided, that, forgiven and forgiving, we may ever be one in Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever, one holy and undivided trinity. Brothers and sisters, I understand that every person's journey in forgiveness is unique. Every person's experiences requires special care and understanding. And sometimes it can be more than what we can figure out by ourselves. So if you'd like to talk with somebody, if you would like to work through your path towards forgiveness with a pastor at our church, with an elder, with another brother and sister, I'm sure we're all available to each other, but I just wanna let you know that especially our pastors, we're here for you to help you walk through those journeys and to process those hurts to come to a place that is truly good and beautiful and necessary. So with that, I'd like to send you with this benediction. As you go from this place, 
into a world characterized by conflict, flowing with the adversarial current. May you be empowered by the grace of God, by his love for you and his forgiveness, his mercy and kindness, his compassion and patience. May you be empowered by these things to show the same to a world that simply doesn't deserve it. For none of us deserved it either. Be blessed and be well. Go in peace.